Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as we continue our study. We're really going to be focusing in on just one verse uh, and some corollary passages with it. Um, well, probably three verses, but uh, our main focus on one verse. We're going to begin chapter 1, verse 8, and read uh, through to the uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Just to get a context of the passage before us today in verses 12 through 14. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is our custom. God's Word declares, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf through the gift granted to us through many. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understood, understand, what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of our Lord, of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no? But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Now that we have dominion over your faith, not, I'm sorry, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? Well, we want to uh, continue our study this morning in Second Corinthians and our focus today is really on our message and our conduct. And there's no magic or uh, unique way to present this than to just present it and realizing that for most everyone in this room, the content is familiar to us. But one of the frightening aspects of familiarity is that we grow so accustomed to it that we aren't attentive to it. And it isn't until something goes wrong that we start to concern ourselves with it. We have grown so accustomed to electricity that the only time we really sense its the wonder of it is when it's gone. It's when the power goes out, when the light switch doesn't work, when the bulb goes poof, and we turn it on instead of just illuminating the room. Now, I fear in many cases that's the situation with simple truth that we're going to be looking at uh, in terms of what our message and our conduct ought to be. And so we come to a time when Paul's going to use a word that he's going to use quite frequently in 2 Corinthians, that is the word boasting. And we, of course, have uh, taken that word to incredible lengths 
uh, in our world today and made it mean something a little bit different than maybe in this sense being used in Scripture. So we're going to want to consider that also. But we're going to talk about what it is it that we glory in. What is it that we uh, make as that which we um, applaud? Not only in our lives, but in the lives of all believers. What are we applauding in one another? What do we look for as the evidentiary of, of the working of God? And Paul has a very different perspective upon it than most. Certainly different than our perspective today. And so we want to look at his view of what it is that the church ought to be boasting in, the ministers of, of uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to be emphasizing. And again, his focus is always upon directing that as a vessel towards God. And we want to do the same today in our study. So let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning before we get into our text too far. Lord God, we do thank you for this hour, this place, uh, opportunity that it affords us to take time away, set it aside, and focus our attentions upon your truth. And Lord, uh, we see the need for it in our lives as so much of this world captivates so much of our attention. Lord, we need this time really to help us to reset and reestablish our priorities. To then bring them to bear upon all the rest. That we might trust fully in you. That we might walk more fully according to your word. And Lord, again, we come to your word, confessing our inadequacy to really handle it by our own intelligence, by our own ability. Um, We pray for your help. Your spirit might lay hold of this time. that What is spoken might be according to his direction and by your word. There might be truth. That equally what is received might be received a spirit of humility, recognizing the authority of your word, that what needs to be transformed is our lives, not your truth, to fit us. But our lives to fit your truth. And we pray that you might be at work in our midst this hour. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kevin, could you close that door? I can hear the little ones, so I think you guys probably could too. might help. Well, we are in uh, the midst of Paul's introductory comments, but he's gotten a little bit more significant than that already. Uh, We've seen that in terms of relaying his personal circumstances a couple of weeks ago as he talked about the enduring of trouble, that trouble is one of those measures of God's work in our life, that if we do not have enemies among the people uh, to whom we are going, among the heathens, the lost, the world, that there is probably something wrong with our message and and with our life. And he says, listen, the, the trouble that we are having is certainly um, extensive, even to the point that, that life itself seemed to be uh, lost. Uh, but these are all God's purposes to keep us from trusting in ourselves, but rather to trust fully in God. Uh, and this is a struggle we all have today. Uh, we put our trust in God for our eternity, but not necessarily for our work week. And to make that transition is what God calls us to, is is that if you're going to trust me for your eternal salvation, that you need to trust me with today. You need to trust me with the things you have to deal with on a daily basis, sometimes people and responsibilities and troubles uh, that you're going to have to trust me with your uh, not only your physical well-being, um, but your entirety of your life. And those lessons are often best learned in the midst of trouble. And Paul learned those lessons well. And perhaps one of the scariest things of our Christianity in the Western world is how little trouble we really have, and thus how little deliverance we've ever really experienced, and therefore 
how little trust we really have. So unmeasured faith against tribulation is a dangerous one. So we want to focus certainly on that message of God's deliverance of our eternity. There is that deliverance from the great death, but He also does deliver us today, and we can trust He'll still deliver us in all that we encounter. So out of that context that we looked at two weeks ago, we come now to Paul's testimony. That was one aspect of his testimony in terms of what he was suffering in Christ's name at that time. But there was uh, not only his glory and suffering, which we're going to see expanded for us in the chapters to come later on in the book, um, but he also has a secondary part of his testimony that he wants to introduce here as well. And again, this is going to be expanded extensively throughout Second Corinthians. We're going to find these two uh, aspects of what is it that really represents powerful Christian living uh, what is the evidence of it? When we look around for examples, what are we looking for? And we find these two elements that Paul is going to draw out and he's going to reinforce and repeat throughout this book. And that is, uh, what is the cost of your commitment to Christ in your life? And the second aspect is, what is the uh, kind of living that Christ is evident in what is what is the living that we ought to be uh, putting forth that men can look at and see christ and paul brings us forward as this idea of boasting and again we want to discuss this terminology our boasting is this and then later on of course he's going to talk about in verse 14 uh, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of christ and this is going to come up over and over and over again throughout Second uh, Corinthians, and I think we probably need to take a little time to establish, we're not talking about bragging in the sense that we think of it, aren't I wonderful? But rather, what is it uh, in my Christian experience that I uh, value? I think that's probably the best way to describe it. What is it that I value in terms of where I am in my relationship with God and what I am doing in God, um, what is the measure by which I determine not its success and failure necessarily, but just the evidence that it is that, that there's something going on, that there is active fruit to uh, my Christian life. And so when we look at this, it is not that we are going around bragging about it. In fact, he's going to apologize for that later in the book of the foolishness of having to recount it one to another. It should have been evident to the Corinthians, just as their uh, accounts should have been evident to him and were evident. Um, but he has to sit here and take time to list them off, all of his sufferings as well as um, where he has come from. He says, this is absolute foolishness to have to do this, um, but if you require it, here it is. And so the idea of boasting here is not the brag, but rather here is the evidence. Here is the, that which I value in terms of God's work in my life. And here is that which I will seek to consistently portray to others. That this is what keeps me going, so to speak. What is my motive? What is it that, that drives me? And so he begins by talking about uh, the testimony of his conscience. Paul has already been dealing with those who, within as well as from without the church, who questioned him, who questioned his motives. And this is what we want to really drive into this uh, morning. And that is, when you have this opposition, what is going on in your conscience? It should be evident in our lives and in our message. And we're going to find it consistently there in Paul. But his testimony to them is, listen, regardless of what others have said about me, in my conscience, I know the approach that I have taken to ministry. 
And others can sit here and question my motives. They can sit there and say, he's doing this for these reasons. But I know in my heart what those reasons are, what it is that drives me. And he says, this is what I want to share with you. And I am going to have to do it extensively throughout this book to establish and reestablish and reaffirm uh, my authority in commanding you in some areas of lack, some areas of sin, as well as some areas that they are doing well in. But based upon what authority? When we have others coming in questioning the motives of leadership, why is he doing what he's doing? And Paul himself is going to bring into question the motives of others who have brought, come in to try to divide the church, who have brought in false teaching into the church, and he talks about their motives are evident. That is, they are plainly visible in their lives. And so he, he offers the Corinthians, look at my life, they will tell you my motives. There's no secret agenda under the surface. I want to be transparent with you. And he looks at these other teachers, he says, listen, their agenda is also equally apparent even though they may try to cloak it. And so he talks about the motives of, of greed, of their belly's sake, and that they come in with, and he talks about the Judaizers in the, in the book of Galatians. He, he refers to these false teachers on several occasions, and he says, you can examine and see their motives. Well, we know the difference, and we should have discernment to be able to determine that difference between false accusation and genuine state of men's consciences. And so Paul is dealing with some accusation against him. Either those who had come into the church since his leaving, those who maybe were in the church and were not of the Pauline sect. Remember in 1 Corinthians, they had, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Um, and it's easy for those that were not of that group that says, I'm of Paul, to point the finger and say, aha, you see, Paul was going to come visit us and he didn't. It didn't quite happen the way he said and and so um, he's not trustworthy and he's got, he's got this other, he doesn't really care about us. He's got other things on his plate that are more important to him. And you see, and here I am in your presence. You can almost, he can almost hear the words going on there in Corinth that Paul would have to defend himself to this church that he started. If you think that's hard to believe that occurs, it occurs all the time. So Paul's going to defend his conscience. But he doesn't do that just by saying, um, I know my motives, but rather, you know my conduct. Your motives are best measured, not by what you think they are, but what they are by evidence of your conduct. Even as James tells us that what's in the heart comes out in speech, how we communicate with just a small body part, great things are evidenced. Either great things positively or negatively, but it is evident what comes out of our mouths defiles the man, not what goes in, Jesus Christ said. Well, Paul asks them to consider his conduct. And he knows, Paul knows how he lived before the Corinthians. And this is his description. We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. So he calls them to consider and remember, and he's going to expand this, as I said, later on in the book, but he calls them to consider and remember how he conducted himself in the city of Corinth at large and among them in particular. Look at my life. There is no hidden agenda. We see the word simplicity um, and we think that uh, that means that he lived a simple life and that means he didn't use any of the modern technology and things like that. And we kind of put our ideas of that word in. But it's really the opposite in my little margin, maybe in yours too, the opposite of simplicity is duplicity. That is that it was just a one-mindedness to his life. There wasn't a hidden agenda. There wasn't something going on in secret that wasn't out there in public. He, he didn't have two faces. 
There wasn't a hidden part of his life. There wasn't a, a, a aspect of his ministry that no one had access to. That his conduct before them was singular. And then the second term was sincere. It was godly sincerity. And sincerity, of course, is that uh, word without wax, uh, as they would uh, have implements and things that were out for sale, and they would use wax to cover the cracks and crevices. And uh, so if you wanted the genuine article and wanted to know really what condition it was in, you wanted it sincere. You wanted it without any wax to fill in the little holes and flaws. He says, listen, I was in front of you with godly sincerity. No wax to cover my flaws. There they were. I'm a human. I have those limitations. Um, I presented them to you, uh, not uh, hiding and try to uh, uh, trick you with uh, anything, but rather being godly before you. That you receive from me the genuine article. And so I had this singular purpose and a singular life that I lived in front of you. I lived it without trying to uh, pretend. There was not a facade that you saw one day that wasn't there in any other setting. And by the way, we call that hypocrisy. So the opposite of godly sincerity is hypocrisy. The opposite of, of this word simplicity is duplicity. You're living two lives. Paul says, why would you entertain any accusation against me when you've seen my conduct? That I lived out in the world and I lived in front of you the same life, a singular life of godliness. Oh, that that would be our testimony everywhere we have gone. That that is in our conscience clear, and and it has to begin there, in our conscience, because we know where we live one kind of life, where we live another kind of life. We know those areas. And Paul says, I don't have those in my life. And you yourselves know how we conducted ourselves. For we did it in front of you. So we didn't just sit and say, uh, be careful of those who, um, whose God is their belly and who do things for money and carry off uh, their false teaching for these purposes, we lived it out in front of you. We wouldn't take your money. We would work, rather work and earn a living so that we could have this boast. And really, it is really a, a testimony, this statement that says that we're going to live out singularly the same thing that we're teaching. And thus, what you saw was what you got when you dealt with Paul. Sometimes that made him enemies. Sometimes it forced him to have to write some pretty harsh words. That when they are written today, we get all offended if we were the recipients of some of those very words. But for Paul, it was that singular, genuine representation of Christ in him by which he functioned in their society. Essentially, we can boil down the first half, verse 12, to say, listen, I was never a hypocrite among you. We had a singular life that was in agreement with our message, and that was all that we were. And brethren, when our life choices do not line up, with our message that we proclaim or claim. Many times we don't proclaim, we just claim it. Too afraid to actually proclaim it, but we'll at least say it. When those don't correlate, that is hypocrisy. And it is ungodliness. And it does damage to the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the calling of Paul uh, for not only ministers, for those of his group, and he's going to name three of uh, Silvanus, uh, Silas is how we know him, uh, and Timothy as well as himself. Um, but he's certainly incorporating others that, that minister alongside him. Listen, we come before you without that 
duality. There, there's, there's, a, there's a simplicity that our message and our lives are the same. They correlate. There is no disparity between them. And oh, that the world would see that in the church. And that has been one of the accusations against church for a long, long, long time, hasn't it? Well, the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Usually my response is, well, don't join them then because we don't want to add to the problem. Resolve some issues first in your life. But the fact that that accusation holds water should concern us. That there are hypocritical aspects of our lives that must be ferreted out to cleanse our conscience. Oh, that we would be able to walk in this world with a clear conscience that says, listen, I've tried and I fail occasionally, but, but my overwhelming drive of my life is to have a singularity between my message and my life. That the way I live, the way I work, the way I eat, the way I exercise, the way I have relationships, the way that of everything that goes on out there um, goes along with what I claim to be doing here Sunday morning. That those acts are equally acts of worship as this act is. And if we cannot conclude that those are acts of worship, then they ought not to be in our lives. If I cannot say, praise God in the midst of doing that, or saying that, or being that. This is that simplicity term that's used here in the, in the New King James. This is that singularness of life. That kept Paul from being really attacked honestly because there was no disconnect between his message and his ministry, between his declaration and his life. They were one. This kind of consistency the world is watching for. They want to see it. Doesn't mean they're going to like it when they see it. But they're also watching for its absence. And let me share with you what you already know, and that is the absence of that consistency gives them an excuse to reject your message. Very simply. That when we are inconsistent in our living, it gives the world opportunity to reject our Savior. And this is why the calling of God for godly living is so strong. Not because we're trying to earn something from God. Paul had already received that. And he recognizes that even to do so is not, he says, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. He says, listen, I don't boast in this as something I have accomplished, but rather the grace of God in me, working through me, not because I have figured out something that no one else can figure out. That's fleshly wisdom. And so I didn't live this kind of lifestyle and make these decisions based upon something within me. But by the grace of God, um, this is how I strive to live. With a singularity. With, all, with no flaws being hid. No mask being put on. We do it by the grace of God. But when it has failed to accomplish among God's people, it gives opportunity for the world to say, Aha! Aha! See? There isn't any difference. Because ultimately, if you, whether you're wearing a mask now or wearing a mask then, <laughs> it will be borne out. And it communicates something, if nothing to the world yet, it communicates something to your own conscience that something isn't right in your life. Something needs to be resolved. 
Either you are living a lie here on Sunday and Christ really isn't your Lord and Savior or you're living a lie out there because you're more worried about what men think than what God thinks. One place or the other, you're living a lie. And Paul says, that's not what you've seen in me. And oh, that this would be something that we treasure above all else. That in our treasure box of life, we have placed simplicity and godly sincerity in there. Not that I am perfect, but by God's grace, I am what I am. And I strive against sin like all other men. But I am not going to put on a facade. and I'm not going to try to uh, trick people into thinking I am something that I'm not. I will not live the lie. Not to the people at church, where if that's where you're living the lie, or the people in the world, if that's where you're living the lie. Paul says, listen, oh, that we would have singularness, a simplicity, and that we would treasure it in our conscience. Is this easy to achieve? No. Is it easy to maintain? Um, even more, no. It is constant effort and energy to achieve and then to maintain this kind of living. And yet God calls us to it. We trust not in ourselves, but in the grace of God. And Paul makes it very clear that this is probably something that he was taught through the suffering that he currently was experiencing. Fire purifies. It drives out the impurities. It drives out that which isn't of the, of the value. And just as the gold refined by fire has a dross come up upon it, um, so it is that by that working of God, we can see the dross and now that which has been commingled with it has now come to the surface and can be extracted because it has been separated from it. This requires some hard things to happen in our lives, which unfortunately don't happen to most of us. And so we continue that impure state of having it all mixed in and we think that somehow we are gold because we, are, we have little streaks of gold here and there. But in fact, there's all these impurities that really many times only the fire of trouble can bring out and separate and distinguish it so that we can withdraw it. I don't disassociate verse 12 from verses 8 through 11, essentially. And because we are in that condition of not experiencing these kinds of troubles, uh, we often become very defensive when someone comes and questions our simplicity and sincerity of our faith. How dare you? Because we have successfully mingled God's gold with the world's dross. And Paul says, listen, my conscience is clear. In front of you, I lived singularly. My message was evident in my conduct. It was without wax. It was godly. I hid nothing. I wore no masks. We would use the word transparent in our day. I lived a transparent life before you. And what you saw was godliness. And he said, and when it comes to you, it says, um, you even got an extra dose of it. Verse 12 at the very end. It says, I'm even more abundantly toward you. Um, you know, uh, I went overboard to make sure that you saw my life. Why would that be necessary in Corinth more than, say, in Philippi or in Ephesus? 
Well, look at Corinth, Sin City, where people could show up in one port and go out the other port and pretend to be whatever they wanted in between while in the city of Corinth. Because they were just traveling through. And in this place with, where duplicity was reigning all over the place, here comes a man who had to go overboard to make sure that they knew that this was his consistent life. Which means that he had to be completely transparent to them, even to the point that we would say, well, that's not really necessary. Yes, it was. Why? Because of the nature of the society that was there in Corinth. And again, as I have been saying all through this series, um, if there is any society on earth today that looks Corinthian, it's ours. Or if there's any biblical society that looks the most like ours today, it would be Corinth. Brethren, it is not just necessary for you to live this, conduct yourselves in this way, to live this way. It is extremely necessary that you do so. That you go overboard even in demonstrating that this is your honest life. That this is, that, that you are genuine. That this is not just a, a facade of Christianity that you are living, but it's the real thing. It is more necessary in this kind of a culture than uh, in any others. For people expect you to be hypocritical. Because they are. And it's in those situations that we need to go above and beyond and say, there's no secrets here. Walk in any time. I have had on a few occasions in my life, my ministry life, some weird accusations come against me, um, sometimes from some really strange sources. But uh, one of them, I remember one time I was very young in the ministry, um, but by God's grace, I had established some patterns of of uh, dealings with uh, within the church as well as within the community. And uh, when this accusation came, uh, I remember the sitting in the living room and getting ready to defend myself, and and uh, three different people wouldn't let that happen. That is, wouldn't let me defend myself because they quickly did it for me. They said, "Oh no, this no." You're just showing your ignorance. Why? Because I had gone overboard more than is necessary to defend these certain areas to demonstrate this is the reality of my life. And I had invited those three individuals that close into my life that to let them see every area of my life. Including in that situation, my finances. And so someone comes up and wants to say, he's just some greedy guy. And they're like, what are you talking about? We know his checkbook. Really? You had to let, yeah. We know what he's doing. And I say, well, is that really necessary to go that far? In this society, yes. Paul says, listen. I have always lived simply. I've always, and that is singularly, I've always lived without wax. I've, I've borne out godliness to the world. But you know, when it came to you, I had to even go overboard in it. And brethren, the way to combat the accusation of hypocrisy against the church is to go overboard in presenting ourselves as living with these clear consciences that we are the genuine article and I am willing to expose myself to your examination in any area of my life to prove it. I will do it more abundantly toward you. Come in and examine me. Come on in. Why is it necessary? Because the world assumes your hypocrisy first. You have to establish your sincerity. 
And this is why we concern ourselves with the appearance of evil. This is why we concern ourselves with what men think. It does matter. Their perception of my life. How do they perceive my living? Paul says, I have gone overboard toward you to secure a reputation of godly living. That this guy is the genuine article. And that's why I am he was moved to write this letter. And he says in verse 13, what I essentially started out this message with, I'm not writing to anything you already know. I think we all know that God does not like hypocrisy. I think all of you here in this room knew that. That to say you're a follower of Christ and go out there and to make decisions that don't correspond with that uh, gives the world a reason not to believe in Christ and therefore we go we are called to go overboard and to be Too godly, if there is such a thing. And so, yes, I'll I'll not conduct myself in such a way that it gives the even the appearance to the world that there is evil going on. A few months ago, I was needing to get some glass bottles for my rabbits. I don't want to use plastic with them because I eat them. The rabbits, not the bottles. Um, and so I could went into Smith's and got some glass bottles of water. But they're also about the same shape as a bottle of wine. And so I'm out in the parking lot, and it was a hot day. And I opened one up and just... And there was a police officer in the parking lot watching me. And I caught him in the peripheral vision. And I looked over him and I walked. I said, water. <laughs> and I showed him the thing. It's water. And uh, it was even in a green bottle and all this. And I was like, water. <laughs> water. Oh, we, we have to be that careful. It matters that much. You know, and yeah, I think that we need to be careful even with, you know, I remember at college, the big thing was sparkling cider. And it looks like it's got the bubbles just like. And what are we trying to portray? This is our Christianized version of champagne. And we pour it out in the glass and there it looks just like it. Oh, isn't that exciting? Why? Because... We're not concerned about our testimony. We are presenting duplicity. Paul says, listen, I even more abundantly toward you lived out this way. These aren't things you aren't aware of. But Pastor, you're calling us to a level that just seems excessive. Yes, I am. Because... We are not coming to the world on neutral ground. We have a history. And that history is one of worldliness, of hypocrisy. And so it is necessary for us to go overboard in the other direction and don't want anything to do with that which might make others consider or think or imply anything but godliness in our life. And that's in our speech. I do not use innuendos. Why? Because there are two letters from being crassness. They don't belong in our speech. We already know these things, but we are called to a higher level again and again. Why? Because of the nature of our society, and if we really want to be a minister there, 
We need to do it even more abundantly toward them. So Paul says in verse 13, you already know these things. Nothing new. I'm not writing to you that which you haven't already read, understood. Um, but I want you to understand them even more, even to the end. He says, listen, I'm not giving you new information here, but I'm trying to challenge you to carry this information, make it real in your life, all the way to the very end of your life and to the end, to the fullness of this information. And I'm not going to choose one of the other interpretations of this phrase, but I'm going to choose them both. I do that a lot. That we have to have a fullness in our understanding of this, sure, but we also have chronologically the need to carry that fullness with us all the way through. Because you could carry it for a few years, you could carry it for a couple decades, and as soon as you drop that ball, what is everyone going to know? What is their accusation? What is their claim? What is their statement? Huh, see? No different. So though I have 30 years of faithful fidelity in my marriage, I dropped that one time, what happens? I'm unfaithful. And so Paul calls upon him to lift up the fullness of this ideal and to carry it all the way through chronologically to the end. Yes, there's a partiality to it that he has seen in the Corinthians. They've... They are working, they are, they are moving, they are, they are trying to. But you know what? His real goal, his objective, his desire is that they would get it all. That they will fully understand it and that they will put it into place in their life consistently all the way through their life. He concludes this ideal of his testimony by saying, listen, We value a clear conscience. But we also recognize that your leadership, having a clear conscience, is going to open doors for you. That is that which you should value. To be able to declare and to rejoice in the fact that you have guys like Paul leading your church, leading your lives, leading your family. Paul says, we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, ministry is not about where I am. Ministry is about where you are. That that is my concern. That is my objective. That is what I value. Is God's working in your life. That when I sit to examine ministry and I do not sit there and look at and read and listen to my sermons. No, I look at your lives. Is there an impact? Is there that which I can give glory to God in in what is going on in your life? Not only today, but all the way to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's why it's strongly, not just for a season, to achieve this, but to maintain this to the end, to the day of Jesus Christ. I think every member of every church, of every denomination wants to believe that their leadership are truly godly. Do you agree with that? And that's what 14 basically says. This is what you want. This is what you want. You want godly leadership. Well, guess what? Every godly leader, you know what they truly want? and truly desire to believe, and truly desire to see, is a godly congregation that's going to live it. Not on Sunday in front of me, but every day. 
in front of the world. That simplicity and godly sincerity is the norm. And because of the nature of our society, we're going to go to the nth degree to achieve that testimony before men, even before each other. And we're going to call one another to just that kind of living. I recognize that most in the Christian community do not want that kind of accountability. So they hide in mega churches where they don't have to answer to anybody for anything. But I'm not pastoring a mega church for that reason. <laughs> if any mega church ever invited me to be their pastor, it would be the end of it. First thing I do is go in there and say, okay, you guys go form a church, you guys go form a church, you guys go form a church. We're going to get 12 churches out of this thing before a year's out. Because the Christian walk is all about accountability. We hold one another accountable to God's word. We take God's word and say, live this. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, listen, the word of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, rebuke. Why? So that we can be perfect or complete or, to use these terms, singular without wax, God. We hold one another accountable to this book because we know that there is a need for it. Not only within the world, there's always been that need, but in our church. And if ever there's been a need for us to even go to the extremes in trying to make sure that our testimony is intact, it is this day, in this age, in this society, the way we live. So I will fault no one for going to an extreme to show righteousness. And I will always be convicted if some aspect of my life appears less than godly. Whether it is in my heart or mind or not is irrelevant. This is the extremes we want to go to. I think that we have to go to in relationship to what's going on in this society even as Paul saw it in Corinth and saw the need, not just to make sure your conscience was clear, but to make sure that there was no room for doubt in anyone's mind in that society. Although we would be willing to take it to those degrees. Let's pray.